episode 18 with Gina Cho. Where meditation meets daily life, this is the Meditation Freedom Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Meditation Freedom Podcast. My name is Seiko Rode, and this podcast is all about meditation and mindfulness and why folks like you and me start practicing this. What prompts us to sit down and meditate or do running meditation or walking meditation or even singing meditation as our previous guest Tanya talked about in the last episode? Why do we do this and why do we keep doing it? This is all about getting in touch with that why and why do we want to become more conscious and awake, more at peace, more aware and more present in each moment. So in this podcast, I bring on these guests from all different walks of life who have familiarity with meditation or mindfulness and who walk a wisdom tradition path, a wisdom path. And, you know, ideally, I talk to people who've been walking this path for a while so they can look back at it and share what they've learned and share the insights and the struggles and the experiences. I also bring in beginners once in a while to see how they practice and what their struggles and insights are. So please let me know if this podcast is interesting to you. Oh, and if my voice sounds a little bit out of whack, that's because I took a major hike this morning, just decided, oh, let's go up this mountain. And I started from the foot of it, at about 200 meters above sea level or 600 feet and walked all the way up to five and a half thousand feet or close to that. And uh, that's probably why my voice was out because it was also 95 degrees Fahrenheit outside and which is about 34 degrees Celsius. And, you know, you just kind of, it does something. It wears you out pretty good. So somehow that, that wore my voice out, even though I didn't. It's not like I was talking to the trees or anything. Anyway, today's guest is Gina Cho, and Gina is co-founder of the JC Law Group PC, a bankruptcy law firm in San Francisco, California. So she is a lawyer that used to have anxiety, and now she's more of a mindful, resilient lawyer. And she talks about that also in her new book, her upcoming book called The Anxious Lawyer, An Eight-Week Guide to a Happier, Saner Law Practice using meditation. She offers training programs on using mindfulness and meditation to reduce stress while increasing focus and productivity. And on top of that, she is also the co-host of the Resilient Lawyer podcast. And I'll make sure I have the links towards the end of the episode. They'll be mentioned again. And then, of course, they'll also be on the website at meditationfreedom.com slash 18. Let's get right into the interview with Gina Cho. Thank you so much, Gina, for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We always start our podcast with asking my guests how they got started with a meditation practice and, you know, kind of what prompted them to to seek out a mindfulness meditation practice. Sure. So I started meditating when I was in law school. So this was back in 2003. I lived at the Himalayan Institute for a little bit of time. Then I fell out of the practice for a long time. But I think that seed was planted 
in terms of cultivating a mindfulness and meditation practice. About six years ago, I started just noticing a lot of anxiety, particularly around social situations. And at the same time, I was planning my wedding and my husband, now my husband and I, we had a law practice, a very successful law practice. And I would always get headaches and backaches and stomach aches. And I would just sort of micromanage all those symptoms using drugs. And as we got closer to our wedding, I noticed that I was losing hair. So not just a little bit of hair. I was actually losing big clumps of hair. I'd get out of the shower and there would be a little roll, you know, of hair in the shower. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm dying. And I went to a doctor and he ran every test and he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. It's really all in your head. So he sent me out to see a psychiatrist and you know, basically same thing said, well, you're really stressed and you're anxious and you have social anxiety. And I thought, what the hell is that social anxiety? That doesn't even sound like a real disorder. Um, and of course, sort of the treatment was to give medications, right? So anti-anxiety, antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm still young. I'm just starting my life. getting married and I didn't want to go down that path of starting my life with medication and it's not a cure right it's just you know it's a symptom blocker at best and a good friend of mine told me about this treatment program at Stanford and so I applied to the program and they said yes you do have social anxiety and the two different treatment program that was offered One was cognitive behavioral therapy, and the other was MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And when she explained the two different treatment options, I thought, you have to put me in the mindfulness program because the CBT, it doesn't seem like it would work for me. And of course, as luck would have it, I got put into the CBT program, and it was really effective. I highly recommend it for anyone that suffers from any type of anxiety disorder. It's highly, highly effective. It's a a really amazing program. But I was curious about the MBSR program, so I signed up for another MBSR class also at Stanford, and my husband took the class with me, and it was life-changing. It really change and transform my life and my relationship to my life in a way that is almost hard to describe into words. Um, but, you know, I've been an, a daily meditator since. So that's oh, how wow. I got started with my meditation practice. That's great. And, and can you explain a little bit more? What is this social anxiety? So social anxiety can have a lot of different flavors, but it's basically when you feel a tremendous amount of anxiety around social interaction. So for me, it was public speaking. Of course, a lot of people have social anxiety around public speaking, so that's not so uncommon. But even just things like being in a small group. So any any group, let's say more than like three or four people would give me a lot of anxiety. Or if you're in a group setting and you have to go around the room and introduce yourself, I would literally break out into a a cold sweat as my turn came closer and closer. Talking on the phone gave me a lot of anxiety, Um, you know, and just things like that. So the CBT program is great because what they do is they have you list all the things that cause anxiety and you basically 
field tested. So for example, if you have anxiety around talking on the phone, you would actually get on a phone call with the therapist and kind of role play those situations that mm -hmm. you're going to be in. So that's, that's at least, that's my best definition of social anxiety. And, and don't you as a lawyer also have to deal with going out, you know, having public situations where you have to present a case or, or defend somebody publicly? Is, is there a component there that was also inducing stress with you? Yeah, definitely. Surprisingly, though, being in court didn't really give me the same kind of anxiety as I did if I had to do a presentation for a group. I think it's because I started my law practice at the state attorney's office where I was fairly used to being in the courtroom. I mean, of course, whenever you're in a courtroom situation, there's a certain amount of anxiety that happens. And I don't think anxiety is all bad. I think actually anxiety is your body's way of letting you know that this is an important event. And you can either interpret the anxiety as being bad and label it as being bad, or you can just notice the physical sensation of anxiety, which is, of course, sort of the foundation of a mindfulness practice as being with what is and being with it moment by moment. So in a way, it sharpens, you use it then in your advantage to sharpen your attention, maybe with, my, with mindfulness. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. so I really learned to be learn to use anxiety as a friend rather than uh, something that debilitated me. Yeah. And what, maybe you can explain a little bit more to someone who's never heard of mindfulness-based stress reduction. What's that like? What, what is the meditation like? Mindfulness-based stress reduction was started by John Kabat-Zinn, who is a researcher at UMass, and he was noticing that people that either had some sort of a terminal illness or a chronic pain condition was really not very, uh, the, the treatment options were very limited. You know, you get painkillers, but that's really about it. So he brought the mindfulness-based stress reduction program from, I guess, the Eastern culture and really secularized it and brought it to the U.S. and he started using it for his patients. And what he noticed was that people really developed a different relationship with their pain. And also for the terminal patients, they really were able to come to grips with the fact that they are going to die. And instead of obsessing over the fact that their days were limited or numbered, they really learned to be with and enjoy the moments that they do have left. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, let's face it, none of us really have any guarantees in terms of how long we have left on this planet. Um, so the the program is eight weeks long. It's two and a half hours each week. So it is a fair amount of um, time commitment. And you learn different things about mindfulness. You learn mindful eating. You learn concepts around self-compassion, compassion towards others, um, you know, accepting the moment as is, uh, being in the present moment, and you get weekly homework exercises and you do um, a lot of insight-based meditation. So following the breath, practicing open awareness, noticing sounds around you, noticing any body sensations, whatever may arise. And the other big component is the body scan. 
And they also bring in a lot of yoga movements into the MBSR class. Hmm. And is there a daily component too that you do kind of as your homework or? Yeah, there's a daily meditation practice. And I don't know if this is true for every MBSR class, but our homework was to meditate for 45 minutes every single day. And I think we started out with the body scan and we use that for our first few weeks and then you move into the insight meditation. Interesting. Yeah. And um, as, as a lawyer, have you found that to be helpful in your practice? Yeah, in so many ways. I think my the biggest way it's helped me is that I learned to be less critical of myself and others. So I think most of us kind of walk around life and we have this script that's running through our head and it basically says we're not good enough, we're right. not smart enough. And I really learned to be my own best friend and regardless of what may happen or what may go wrong in my day, I can still say, you know, I'm not going to abandon myself, right? I'm always going to be my own side and and also just recognizing that we're all human. So before I started practicing mindfulness, I really treated my opponent as the enemy and it was really fight to the death and mm -hmm. I would you know I would have this mentality to like I am out to destroy you you're out to destroy me and we're you know if we were living in like the medieval days we'd be fighting it out to the death and now I have a very different understanding of our role so I recognize that I have my role to play and my opponent also has his role to play and it's our job to represent our clients to the best of our abilities, but we're not enemies. We're just part of a puzzle and, you know, and I have to respect his, you know, him showing up and doing his best work for his clients, just like I have to do the best for my clients mm -hmm. and also letting go of the things that we have no control over. So, you know, clients come to me and they expect me to deliver a certain outcome, but rarely is that outcome dependent on me, right? Because it's always up to the judge or the trier of fact to decide who's right and who's wrong or who's going to win and who's going to lose. So letting go of those things that I have no control over and really stepping in and doing the best that I possibly can in the arena that I do have control over, which is ultimately only myself. Mm -hmm. Has it affected your the results that you get or, or the the outcome in any way that you've noticed? I think so. I think I'm much more able to pivot. So, for example, when I'm going into a hearing, I, of course, prepare and I have all of my arguments. I have the case law. I know all the facts inside and out. And I kind of go in with a script of how the argument's going to unfold. Yet, rarely do the arguments unfold the way I think it will or should. Right. So... Now I can really listen to what the opposing counsel is saying, finish listening to him instead of doing the typical thing where I listen to about 30% of what he's saying and then I'm busy formulating my response. Your attack so I can plan. Really, or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I can listen, fully engage and listen fully to what he's saying and then take a moment, take a breath and then come up with my response. And the same thing with the judge. So before, if 
the argument or the case isn't going the way I had thought it should, then I would really get off center and I would start to panic. It's not going the way I thought it should. But now I can say, okay, this is not what my plan was, but this is what it is. And now how do I pivot and respond in the, you know, to the best of my abilities, given what is happening now? So it sounds like there's a, a more of a comfort with the uncertainty too. then. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the practice of law is all about being with uncertainty. Absolutely. Yeah, and and this that uh, maybe that's this kind of leads into your the book you wrote called The Anxious Lawyer. And how did you decide to call it that? Well, because I used to be an anxious lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that I'm no longer an anxious lawyer. Not to say I am anxiety free by any stretch of the imagination. And it's funny because when I look back on my life and I look at all the dots and I start to connect it. It's almost as though all the different things that I've done in my life has really prepared me to bring this work into the legal profession. So I really feel like that's my life's work and my life's calling is to help lawyers live a more healthier, more balanced life where we focus on wellness and self-care. And I think the key to doing that is self-awareness. And of course, that comes through a mindfulness and meditation practice. So about two years ago, just randomly, I was I was friends with my now co-host, Keith Lee, on Twitter. And he reached out to me and said, hey, my author at the American Bar Association is going to be in your neck of the woods in San Francisco, and I think you guys should meet. So I said, sure, that sounds good. And so the editor called me, and we were chatting for a while, and I just thought we were going to set up a time for us to meet when he was out in San Francisco. And John said towards the end of the conversation, so when Keith tells me to start listening to someone, I start listening and he said, do you have a book proposal for me? And the words that flew out of my mouth was, yes, I want to write a book on mindfulness for lawyers and I want to title it The Anxious Lawyer. And as the words flew out of my mouth, I wanted to grab it and, <laughs> and take it back because I thought, oh my gosh, I can't be that lawyer. People are going to think I'm a weirdo, this San Francisco lawyer practicing mindfulness and meditation and you know, she's burning incense and chanting and she's a weirdo. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that thought even came from because it wasn't like anything I really thought that much about. And to my surprise, John said, I love it. Those type of books are the books that are selling the best at the ABA right now. And I think it's because there is this sort of need from lawyers to try to find a better way of practicing law in the world and a better way of being in the world. And not constantly walk through life with a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other, which is not a healthy way to go through life at all. Right. Um, so that's how I ended up with the book deal. Wow. It, yeah, because in somewhere I read that lawyers have a, a high suicide rate and a high stress rate, right? So it sounds like your book could address a lot of people's mental suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And the statistics around lawyers and our mental health and our well-being is really depressing. You know, we're three and a half times more likely to suffer from depression, much, much higher rate of substance abuse, alcohol abuse, 
Um, and, you know, just like you said, we have a very high instances of suicide. And I don't think that misery and depression and substance abuse should be a part of our law practice. We're not doing ourselves any favor by living that way. And we're certainly not serving our clients the best that we possibly can if we're not maintaining our mental and emotional well-being. And, and what do you think is causing that high degree of distress? Is there something in the educational system that's making people so miserable? I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think because lawyers tend to be type A and we're, I mean, you don't go to law school if you're from the bottom of your class. Like you generally take the top of the classes or the kids that end up going into law school and all of a sudden you get to law school and you're no longer the smartest kid or you're not even in the top 20% of your class. And then the way they educate you is they use what's called a Socratic method where they call on you in class and you're in these lecture halls with 150, 200 other kids and they basically grill you Hmm. in front of others and you have to stand and you have to recite the facts of the case and come up with the legal analysis and the conclusion. And I think for a lot of people that's really traumatic and this constant push to become excellent and to be excellent, I think adds a lot of pressure and we're not really given any tools for self-care. And then of course, when you go out into the practice, Clients never come to us with happy news. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's face it, if you're sitting in a lawyer office, something has gone terribly wrong. So we are exposed to all this trauma from our clients, yet we're not given any tools for how to process and work through those traumatic experiences. So I think lawyers tend to suffer from vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, all the similar things that people on the mental mental health profession suffer right. from, but yet we're not given any of the tools that the mental health professionals are given. And also people are o- always angry with us. You know, the opposing counsel is angry with us. Their client's angry with us. The judge is often unhappy with us. Our own client's often unhappy with us. And we're expected to deliver these precise results. But oftentimes the only tool we have in our toolbox is a hammer and, but we're being asked to do brain surgery with this hammer. Mm. I think those are just some of the reasons why lawyers are so unhappy. Have you found some of your lawyer colleagues to be appealed by your book? I think so. So, you know, lawyers tend to be slow adopters. We live by precedence, right? And we don't want to be the first to do anything. So I think there's a, a healthy dose of skepticisms, which... I, I, I'm fine with um, but I really try to encourage the lawyers who are unhappy with their life to give this a try. I mean, you have nothing to lose except, you know, maybe a few minutes out of your day and really see for yourself. Like, I never want someone to take my word for it that this is going to work or this is going to do anything. Like, try for yourself and see. Right. So the other thing I was going to ask is what inspired you to become a lawyer? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. So I'm an immigrant. My parents and I came over to the U.S. when I was 10 years old. None of us spoke any English. And when you're an immigrant living in a foreign country, you tend to get taken advantage of a lot. I remember both of my parents ran small businesses, like very typical Korean-American 
and immig- Korean immigrants. My dad owned the laundromat and my mom owned a nail salon, almost stereotypically um, Korean. And, uh, you know, I remember customers would come in and threaten to sue them or to call the police on them for things that weren't warranted. And I think it's because they knew that my parents didn't speak English and they didn't understand the legal system. They didn't understand the justice system. And so we kind of lived in this sort of constant state of fear. And we also experienced a lot of injustice. People took advantage of us a lot. Mm -hmm. And I watched Law and Order as a little girl. And I remember watching those shows and thought, I'm going to be a lawyer so I can correct all the injustices of the world and put bad guys in jail. And of course, I thought at the end of the 60 minute segment, all all the wrongs would be righted in the world, which is a very naive point of view, you know, in hindsight, but that's what made me want to become a lawyer. And do you still find yourself getting in touch with that whenever you need like motivation to get back out there and create justice? I do. Yeah. And now I do bankruptcy work. I I started out as a, as an assistant state attorney. So I did put bad guys in jail, but I quickly realized this, idea of bad guy and good guy isn't as clear as one would like to think you know people are not the sum of who they are is not the worst thing that they've ever done so you may have committed a heinous crime like a murder or rape or whatever but that's not the totality of who you are as a human being um and particularly with the mindfulness practice i think it gives gave me a really different perspective on how to view our criminal justice system um, and that's a whole nother discussion. But now I do bankruptcy work and and I love doing that work because I feel like most of us are probably a few paychecks away from yeah. needing the assistance of bankruptcy. And, you know, of course, it's a right that we all have and bankruptcy system exists for a reason. And I really feel like I get to help people that are like me and, you know, people that I really relate to. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're really helping people. Yeah, I hope so. And in your uh, book, maybe you have a couple of tips that you specifically give to lawyers that would help them have a little less distress and more peaceful working in their daily lives. Yeah, um, so I think the really most important thing is to cultivate the sense of kindness towards yourself um, and not be so critical or so harsh and just recognizing that we're all humans and we're only humans, right? We're not, we're not perfect. Um, and also to kind of have that attitude towards others. So I, I really believe and try to encourage others to think about it in this way that we are all every person is trying their best right like I may not think that you're trying your best and I think you could be doing better but the truth of the matter is that we are all trying our best and if you can see it from that perspective and to try to approach situations with curiosity and saying huh like let's assume that he is a perfectly reasonable human being and why is he acting in this way rather than saying he's such a jerk and he'll always be a jerk and this is the reason why he's behaving in that way Um, so yeah just approaching you know it's like the golden rule right 
And and for for people who say, yeah, I've heard that, but would you recommend like a a practice to to allow someone to be, befriend themselves more? Yes. So loving kindness meditation is been really such a, such a lifesaver and a life changer for me. And that act of wishing yourself well and wishing people you love well and wishing people you have difficulties well and then of course humanity as a whole is such a beautiful practice and it's really helped me see people in in a different light with a little bit more compassion and empathy and to try to approach people with kindness rather than approach people with a hammer you know like yeah. that saying you know right. if your instrument life is a hammer everywhere you'll see nails exactly yeah yeah, yeah i found that in my life too I, I can't just read something i have to practice it and and it's like a, a muscle it just it gets better and better each time and it's in your brain it's it's a, a rewiring of your brain which also doesn't happen from one day to the next it's really a, a practice that has to be done regularly yeah yeah definitely and we all have lenses that we walk around life with and that lens may be flawed right it may be obs obscuring or distorting reality and if you can't have stillness, if you can't have time for reflection, it's almost impossible to see that the lens that you see the world through is distorted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I used to kind of go through life thinking people were intentionally mean or cruel or unkind. And I think if you approach everyone with that lens, then they're kind of going to live up to your expectation. And it may be the energy that you put out and maybe the way you're approaching them. Right. Um, so now, you know, I, I try to be friendly. I try to say hello um, and, you know, just lead with kindness. But I really think that, that uh, that's a practice that you have to do for yourself before you can do for others. Like, I don't think you can be compassionate or kind towards others without first offering yourself that compassion and kindness right like the the uh, flight attendant saying please put your mask on first before you put it on someone else <laughs> oh my gosh i love it. i love that you said that because that's exactly what i say at every single presentation that i do for lawyers i have a slide that says that oh, great. so i love that you brought that up <laughs> yeah everybody can relate to that <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I also think a lot of lawyers think, oh, you know, self-care, that's for, that's not for me. And I have to tough through it. And, uh, you know, I always have to be strong. And if I'm taking, uh, you know, if I'm practicing self-care, I'm being selfish. And nothing could be further from the truth, right? Exactly. Like self-care and, um, and selfish are actually two different ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, do you have any, maybe you want to mention the book and maybe your website and some other places where people can find you and learn more about you if they're interested in what you've just talked about? Sure. So my website is theanxiouslawyer.com and the book is also titled The Anxious Lawyer and you can get it on Amazon. I have a podcast called The Resilient Lawyer. Um, I also have a meditation podcast, um, but you can find all that information and also ways of getting in touch with me by going to my website, The Anxious Lawyer. That's great. And I notice you're on SoundCloud, right? If people want to 
if yeah. people want to uh, listen to you, they have to go to SoundCloud or to or just go to your website. They can go to my website. It's all linked on there. And you can also find me on iTunes and Twitter and Facebook and all the other good stuff. Great. Well, I'll make sure I link to all of that. And uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. This was delightful. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Gina Cho. Let us know what you think of it by going to the website, meditationfreedom.com slash 18. And this webpage will have all the show notes and basically a transcript of the conversation, not complete. Most parts of the conversation I transcribed, links to her website, her book, and her Twitter handle, and so forth. And of course, the website has comments, a comment section at the bottom. So you're most welcome to leave a question or a comment, either myself or the guests of that particular episode. I will ask that person to respond. So next week's episode is going to be with Melly O'Brien, an Australian meditation mindfulness teacher. And other than that, I hope you had a great weekend, whether it's the weekend still where you are, or whether you're still coming, you're still in the middle of the week. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. And until next time, take care. Thank you so much for joining us on the Meditation Freedom Podcast, where meditation meets daily life. 